Hey, true crime listeners, I'm back. It's Kayla here. And I'm Alicia, Kayla's mom. And you are listening to True Crime Exposed. I'm guessing that you clicked on our show in search of true crime cases that you may have never heard of. Well, like I've said before, you've made it and you're all in the right place. So welcome to our show. To introduce ourselves in case you haven't listened to an episode, we are a mom and daughter duo. I host the show, my mom listens and discusses with me, reacts to what she thinks about the story, and we discuss a brand new case every single week. You're going to feel right at home with our casual storytelling. And we created True Crime Exposed to not only expose some of the worst people that exist among us and commit these terrifying crimes, but most of all, to give each victim's story exposure. We support the life of anyone who was taken from us unjustly. And by sharing these stories, we can be victim advocates. That's what's important to us here. We love being that voice for those that no longer have one and for getting stories out there that need to be heard. Each case we share with you holds a special place in our hearts. I don't know if you're ready for it, but let's start on today's case. Okay, so today... I'm taking you back to 1979 till about 1981. This is another case that did not have an overwhelming amount of information and I had to scrape up as much as I could find, but that's why it's important to talk about. I even lived in North Pole, Alaska, which is where this story takes place, and I had never even heard of this case until I went searching for episode content and found it. So bear with me if some of the information about each victim is vague. So it's 1979. 19-year-old Glinda Sodoman was newly married with a new baby. I could not find any sources that actually mentioned her husband's name. So for our story, I'm just going to call him Gary so that I don't have to keep saying Glinda's husband. Okay. So Gary was a military man. And if you're familiar with the North Pole and Fairbanks area of Alaska, you know these little towns are surrounded by military. So let's say you're driving up to Alaska from down here in the lower 48. You drive up through Canada and into Alaska. And as you head towards North Pole, you will first come to Eielson Air Force Base. And then right past that is a tiny town called Moose Creek. And I mean, like tiny, if you blink, you'll miss it. Right after Moose Creek, you will come to North Pole. And then after North Pole, you'll come to Fort Wainwright Army Base. And then after Fort Wainwright, you will finally arrive in Fairbanks, Alaska. And all of this is right next to each other. So about a 20 to 30 minute range from Eielson to Fairbanks. Maybe you could get a map up on the on our website. Yeah, I'll put a map up. We could even put one up like on our Instagram post of this case. 
Now, back in 1980, during the time our story takes place, the population of Fairbanks was almost 23,000 and North Pole population was just under 800. On August 29, 1979, Gary heads to work at the military base to work his day shift while Glinda stays home in their North Pole home to care for the baby. She was a doting housewife and stay-at-home mom, and she seemed to really be enjoying this new stage of her life. After his long day of work, he returned home anxious to spend the night with his wife and giving all the snuggles to his baby. As Gary walks through the front door of his home, he hears the baby crying. He follows the cries to the baby's room and finds the baby in the crib. He looks around for Glinda, wondering to himself silently, why isn't she here taking care of the baby, tending to the baby's cries? It seems eerily quiet in the home once he has the baby picked up and calmed down. Where is Glinda? Gary walks around the home, into each room, and each area he checks is empty. He doesn't hear anything. She would never leave the baby home alone, so he decides to walk outside. She's probably out there getting some fresh air, maybe catching her breath for a moment, and just taking a break from a hard day of being a mom. So he walks outside, sure that he will find his wife there, but she's not there. Oh, so I was just going to say, so this is starts in what year? So this is on August 29th, 1979. So obviously there's no cell phones or anything. So it's not like she can send him a message and say, oh, hey, I'm going to be here. Yeah, exactly. So it just wasn't like that back in the day. No. So if she wasn't home, he had no way to get in contact with her to find out where she could be. He can't hear anyone and it doesn't seem like anyone else is home or even around the home outside. Gary talks himself down for a while like... This is all just a big misunderstanding. He keeps checking everywhere twice, now three times, and he thinks maybe she did run to the store really quick and got caught up, but he waits and he waits, and eventually it has been too long. His worry is starting to make him feel sick to his stomach, and he knew it was time to call law enforcement. Something just seemed off. Well, yeah, it's just not normal to... Like, she would have taken her baby if she went to the Yeah, I... I assume, like, she wouldn't leave a new baby in the house alone. No, moms are not just going to leave their baby. Yeah, it would be way off to me, too. So how many hours was it, does it say, from when he calls the police? It doesn't. I just know that he called the police later that same day. So in the evening after he got off work. So Gary rings the police and he does file a missing person report for Glinda. He also gets in touch with Glinda's father, Ellis Armstrong. Ellis was an Alaskan state trooper and Gary knew that Glinda's dad would know what to do and he was right. Ellis immediately got involved and started a search for his daughter. At first, the police are considering that Glinda may have just walked away from her life. She decided to put the baby into the crib where she knew the baby would stay safe until Gary was home from work. And she walked out the door and with that out of her life willingly. Was she like, did it say in anything that she was depressed or that they were fighting? Like anything that would make her want to leave? Well, they talk about postpartum depression a little bit and then later on like in the show I watched Glinda's dad does say something about like just alluding to the fact that they 
didn't get along great. So, and with that, there was no evidence of forced entry and nothing was overturned or stolen. And also the baby was home and unharmed. So the police were just thinking it was a possibility that she might have just left. Oh, okay. They considered that Linda was just too young to handle all these responsibilities at the young age of 19. Being a wife and a mom can be stressful. And like I said, the possibility of postpartum depression, which is very common for many women after having a baby. Could all of this have led Glinda to deciding it was just too much? Ellis and Gary both insisted that this was not the case. Glinda was happy and she loved her baby and they begged the police to continue looking into Glinda's disappearance because they both knew she would never just leave. She would never do this to any of them. They both told the police that they knew foul play was involved here. Something was wrong and although both Gary and Ellis could agree that something sinister had happened, they were not actually on the same page. Ellis Armstrong pushed police to look into Glinda's new marriage. He was sure that Gary had done something to Glinda. He told his fellow state troopers that Gary was the one who wanted to get rid of Glinda, the only person he could think of that had a motive. We all know that the spouse is always the first person to look at, so with this and the accusations from Glinda's dad, Ellis, suspicion grew about Gary. Oh, wow. I wonder... (laughs) what Gary did to make him think that. I know. He only says one thing about it. I think I have the quote coming up here. And then he doesn't talk about it a lot after that. (laughs) So he does. He alludes to the fact that the marriage wasn't great, but he doesn't actually give a lot of info. Yeah. They must have had some struggles in their marriage for him to assume that it was Gary. Right. So a month goes by and then two months. Hope is fading with each day that passes. It doesn't seem real to Glinda's family. Around that two-month mark of Glinda disappearing, a young boy is hunting in Moose Creek, that tiny town between Isleson Air Force Base and North Pole. He's out looking for moose to hunt, creeping along through the thick trees and then into a gravel pit when he stumbles across a body. It's a woman. She's clearly deceased and he becomes so panicked that he runs. Shaking and terrified, he does not stop running until he's able to find help and report what he had found. I would be freaking out if I found a body. Oh, that would be so scary. <sighs> that would be like the scariest thing ever. I like I would run away too. <laughs> me too. I like even if like with cell phones these days, I'd call the cops, but I would run like far. <laughs> yes. So, state troopers arrive to the gravel pit and tape off the crime scene. It is a body of a woman, just like the young boy had reported. She's fully clothed, laying on her back with a gunshot to the face. They determine that she was not sexually assaulted, and with a single shell casing lying next to her body, they can see that she was shot with a 38 caliber pistol. The medical examiner determines the woman had been strangled before she was shot in the face, and eventually it is confirmed that this is Glinda Sodoman. Oh. I know, it's so sad, and her new baby... Yeah, so what happened to her? Well, Glinda's case goes from a missing person investigation to a homicide investigation. And authorities are now more sure than ever that Ellis was right. They believed Gary killed his wife. According to Ellis on Investigation Discovery's show Ice Cold Killers, 
this is where he states that he believed Glinda's husband got rid of her because he realized that he wouldn't be able to control her the way he thought he could. So I don't know what that means, but that's what he says about it. Okay, I guess he thought he was a little overbearing. A control freak. (laughs) (laughs) So, like I said, I don't know why he believed this. He didn't mention problems in their relationship in his interview with ID, but he obviously alludes to it and he didn't go into further detail. I can't find anywhere that... Linda and her husband did have a strained relationship, but obviously Ellis knew more probably about arguments they had or any wrongdoings in their marriage that led him to believe this. Researching this entire case was a little frustrating because there's little details that I couldn't find and just things that may or may not be relevant to the case, but just things I'm interested in knowing like how old was Glinda's baby? Was the baby a girl or a boy? What's her husband's real name? His job title? How was their marriage? And so on. Yeah. All those details are, it's interesting to find them out. It is. And it's probably because it was a long time ago. And for some reason, I don't think this is a serial killer that a lot of people actually know about. Yeah. So it just hasn't gotten a lot of like coverage. Yeah, not a lot of publicity. Yeah. So police decide to bring Gary in for questioning. They push him like, we know you killed your wife. Tell us why, help yourself, and give us your story. Get ahead of it. But Gary denies all allegations pertaining to his wife's murder. He explains that he is devastated. He doesn't know how to raise this baby on his own. He missed his wife. He loves her. But police thought they knew better. And of course, he would say all of these things to get suspicion off of himself. But they did not believe him. They kept pushing him until Gary is finally like, okay, let me take a polygraph. I will prove to you guys that I am not lying. Uh, I know. Don't ever take a polygraph. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Throughout Gary's polygraph, he was confident. Police even thought he was being a little too cocky. And Gary's confidence was short-lived because soon after taking this polygraph, he was informed that he failed it and now suspicion was higher than ever. Police knew they had their guy, but a polygraph isn't enough for an arrest. They had to find more proof. So they went to work on finding exactly how Gary did this and why. Well, wasn't he at work? Like, I'm sure he had an alibi if he was at work. Yeah, he was at work, but I'm assuming they think, like, he either got rid of her before he went to work and left the baby at home, I guess, or that he was able to do something to her in the hours between when he got home and when he called the police. How long was it after they found her body? Like, how long after she disappeared? Yeah. It was two months. Oh, wow. Yeah. As they let Gary walk free after the polygraph, Ellis is devastated. How could his daughter's killer just go free? But police were at somewhat of a dead end with no evidence linking Gary to the murder. Months keep passing by and after that initial shock of Glinda's disappearance and murder, the town of North Pole was finally starting to breathe a little easier. Most of the town was sure that Gary had killed his wife. Everyone was just waiting for the evidence to be discovered that could put him behind bars. But the thing about small town rumors is they're just rumors. And North Pole was about to have another big shock. 
10 months after Glinda went missing and just eight months after Glinda's body was found, 11-year-old Doris O-Ring is reported missing on June 13, 1980. The day before she's reported missing on June 12, 1980, Doris and her brother Tom decided to go on a bike ride down Badger Road. This is a road that goes down into the town of North Pole and is sort of U-shaped and comes out on the other side, right by Fort Wainwright Army Base. There are a lot of dirt roads off of Badger Road and a lot of houses back in the trees off of this road. I used to ride my bike for school when me and my husband first moved there, and I always hated having to ride on the highway from North Pole to Fairbanks and vice versa on my way home. So one time I took a route and I came through Fort Wainwright Army Base and out onto Badger Road. Then I took that U-shaped road all the way into North Pole and it was a big nightmare. First, (laughs) it was horrible. First, it seemed like it took a lifetime. It was like already 14 miles one way when I went straight down the highway. So this detour definitely added many miles I was crying at every corner, hoping, please let me see the flag that shows me I'm getting into North Pole. And at every corner, I was not seeing the flag. I was also really scared and creeped out because most of the houses are hidden back in the trees. So I just felt really alone and was hoping that no one would stop to get me. (laughs) I remember visiting (laughs) you in um, Alaska and I ran along that road where I would go jog. Um, Yeah. Did it creep you out? Not really. Um, (laughs) You're not as scared as I am. Yeah, that's true. Um, But (laughs) I do remember the houses were back and um, some some places you passed were a little creepy. Yeah, there's just like so many trees. Like you almost see nothing but trees. Right. So... I assume Doris's family lived off Badger Road because she was often riding her bike down this road. When Doris and Tom were riding together on that June 12th afternoon, Doris had sped ahead of Tom, turning a corner and leaving his sight for a moment. When Tom comes around the corner, he spots Doris off of her bike, talking to a man who had his blue car pulled over to the side of the road with the hood up. This man was wearing a military shirt, and as Tom approached, the man told Doris to continue on with her bike ride. He would be fine. He closed the hood of his car and then turned on his car like nothing was wrong and sped off. Tom found it unusual, but didn't question it that day. But when Doris went missing and is nowhere to be found the following day on June 13th, 1980, this memory creeps back into Tom's mind and red flags are going off. Doris had decided that day to head out on her bike again, this time alone. Hours pass by and Doris never returns home. The more the clock keeps ticking with no sign of Doris, the more her parents start to feel the panic set in. She did not normally ride this long or stop at a friend's house without calling home to let her mom know. Hoping that Doris did just forget to call, her parents decide to reach out to multiple friends' homes, including Lisa Ernui's home. As she talked about in her appearance on ID's Ice Cold Killers in their episode titled North Pole Sleigh Ride, during her time on the show, she talked about how her and Doris loved the song Harmony and loved to adventure. They had a great friendship, and Lisa remembers the night her family was called to see if Doris was with Lisa. 
And she remembers having to deliver that devastating news to the O-Ring family that Doris was not at their home. Shelly Thompson was also a friend of Doris and also appeared on ID's coverage of this case. She stated that her world was turned upside down when Doris went missing and has struggled with blaming herself for not being home that day, not being able to hang out, not being there on the bike ride. But as we all know, you can never blame yourself. Blame only falls on the person so vile and evil that they would snatch up a little girl off of her bike in broad daylight. After friends had been called and the roads that Doris normally rode were searched, the O-Rings called the police to report their young daughter as a missing person. A search was immediately underway and within only a couple of hours on the night of June 13th, Doris's bike is found 20 feet off of Badger Road, hidden in the bushes. Devastation is felt by the police department and the family. With the bike being purposely hidden, this seems to be a kidnapping. Tom gives his description of what he witnessed the day before during their bike ride with his sister, and then another lead comes in, matching the description of the man and the car that Tom saw the day before. On the day Doris went missing, someone had seen a man, describing him with a military haircut and sunglasses on, speeding out of a dirt road onto Badger Road and then onto the highway. He was in a blue car and was struggling with something in his passenger seat. And it's like, okay, if you see something like that, you should call the police right away. Yeah. Because he, they saw him struggling with something in his passenger seat while he was speeding off. I know. Why? Why? <laughs> it's but, just weird. Yeah. I wonder what they were thinking or what he was thinking. Yeah, it's like, don't wait until something bad happens. Yeah, you could call, they could check it out and just make sure everything's okay. Right. With these two eyewitness testimonies, a composite sketch is made and released to the public. This sketch shows a white man with short hair and sunglasses on. Unfortunately, with North Pole being surrounded by two military bases, this sketch looked all too common. These eyewitness accounts are the closest thing that the troopers had to a lead, but unfortunately, new leads were not produced with the release of the sketch, and Doris remained missing. Large aerial and ground searches continued, but all efforts to find her kept turning up empty-handed. I actually found an old newspaper clipping from the Fairbanks Daily News Miner from Thursday, October 28, 1976. Doris was a Girl Scout and was pictured holding a canoe with her friends, Michelle Loginus, Shawnee O'Neill, and Don Stevens. Sergeant Sam Bernard actually told a heartbreaking story during his interview with Investigation Discovery about Doris's father. Her father owned a business in North Pole, and as far as Bernard could tell, her father never returned to his business after his daughter went missing. He sat at home most of his time, hoping to be there when his daughter returned. In less than one year, this small community has two girls go missing. One, a young mother who was later found murdered. The other, a young child taken in broad daylight, remaining missing, although the cases don't seem to match exactly. With the difference in age of the victims and where they went missing from, one being found and one not, investigators still can't help but link the two cases together. This is a small community, and having two cases like this so close together, they had to be connected, right? 
They only had one suspect in Glinda Sodomon's case, and that was her husband, Gary. And with that, he became a person of interest in Doris's disappearance as well. Was he some sort of monster that started with his wife and then couldn't stop? He is brought into the police station shortly after Doris goes missing, and the accusations start again. Gary is shocked and confused, like, how is this happening to me again? He screams to the police that this is insane. He has nothing to do with any of it. He does not even know Please Doris. Please do not tell me that he <laughs> took another lie detector test. He does. <laughs> to try and earn the trust of the police, Gary agrees again to take a polygraph relating to the disappearance of Doris. Oh my gosh, he failed the first one. I know. Like, what are you thinking? Uh-oh. He had felt that one with his wife, but I guess he thought maybe his emotions were too high. He was too distraught to have the appropriate responses. But Doris, although he found it heartbreaking for her family, he didn't know her. So her disappearance was not affecting him like Glinda's case did. And he told police that he was sure taking a second polygraph would clear his name, which is like, don't do it. Do not do it. (laughs) Gary goes in for his second polygraph, and what do you know? He fails a second time. Officers are now more convinced than ever that he not only murdered his wife in cold blood, but now they believe that he also kidnapped Doris O'Ring and probably murdered her too. Troopers pressured him to tell them where Doris is. They hoped that they could bring her home alive, or at least bring her home so that her family could lay her to rest properly. Oh my gosh. I wonder if this guy had an attorney. I know. Or if he was just going in there, like, thinking, okay, I have to clear my name. I, I don't mean, know. I mean, they obviously didn't have any evidence, uh, enough evidence against him for his wife. Yeah. And he continued to deny any involvement in his wife's murder and in the kidnapping of Doris O'Ring. Officers needed to find something linking Gary to these horrific crimes, and they started feeling that pressure to make an arrest. According to ID's North Pole sleigh ride, troopers believe there would be another disappearance soon if they didn't get Gary. Around eight months after Doris goes missing, Marlene Peters finds out that her dad had been diagnosed with cancer and was becoming increasingly ill. She's desperate to visit him, but she lives in Fairbanks, Alaska, and her dad lives in Anchorage, Alaska. This is around an eight-hour drive, depending on the time of year that you go. But regardless, Marlene did not have a car, and she didn't have the money to fly down. So she made the decision to find her way to Anchorage no matter what. She had to see her dad. On January 31st, 1981, 20-year-old Marlene Peters was last seen on the side of the road with her thumb up looking to hitchhike a ride down to see her dad before it was too late. Oh, another missing person about to come, isn't it? Yes, and don't hitchhike. (laughs) I do not understand hitchhiking. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people do nowadays. I think it used to be pretty popular back then. Yeah, and then we realize that everybody picks up people and kills them. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Hasn't Shannon picked up a hitchhiker? Yes, and I wanted to kill him, but he thought that he was, he thought he saved the guy's life. So it was really cold outside. You're like, well, that is nice, but danger. Yes, I was super scared. I was in the car with some of the kids. (laughs) 
Oh my gosh, I would be freaking out. <laughs> oh, I did after the guy got out. <laughs> like, what are you thinking? <laughs> oh, yes. Shannon, he's so nice. Yeah. Okay. So Marlene's case was not immediately linked to Glinda and Doris, but then only five short weeks after Marlene goes missing, a fourth girl goes missing as well. By this time, it is early March and 16-year-old Wendy Wilson wanted to see her boyfriend, but she was at her friend's home. She had no car, but you know, when a 16-year-old wants to see her boyfriend, she will make it happen. Yes, she will. There's no stopping her. (laughs) (laughs) They do get creative. They really do. So Wendy decides to convince her friend to walk with her to her boyfriend's house. They all live in Moose Creek, so it's not too far of a walk, but it is still cold outside during this time of year in Alaska. And after a few blocks, Wendy's friend decides to bell. She's like, it's not my boyfriend's house. It's too cold out here to walk. So as the two friends start to walk their separate ways, a truck stops and appears to ask Wendy if she needs a ride. Wendy's friend continues back towards her home, but glances back for a brief moment to see Wendy stepping into the truck and feels some sort of relief knowing that her friend wouldn't have to walk alone in the cold. But that relief would soon turn into grief as it was the last time Wendy Wilson was ever seen. And on a side note, remember Moose Creek is where Glinda Sodomon's body was found. It's that little town between North Pole and Isleson Air Force Base. So there's been two missing there now? Yeah, well, Marlene Peters actually went missing more in Fairbanks because that's where she lived. Glinda and Doris went missing out of North Pole, but Glinda was found in Moose Creek. And now Wendy went missing out of Moose Creek. There's four cases in less than a couple years, so... Were they linking them together? I mean, I guess they were because they did with Gary. Right. They did keep kind of linking them together, but after these four cases, it was apparent that North Pole, Alaska had a serial killer on their hands. Sergeant Sam Bernard stated on ID's coverage of this case that, quote, a blind man could see the connection, end quote. I bet those residents were scared. Uh, yeah. I would be too. So, now here we are, circling back around to Gary again, Glinda's husband. He continues to be the prime suspect in his wife's murder. Investigators know they need to talk to Gary again. And for a third time, Gary agrees to take a polygraph. (laughs) Does he not have an attorney? He must not, because I'm like, are you kidding me? Stop taking them. You can't pass them. You've already taken two. (laughs) So thankfully, though, this time the polygraph is given by an expert and it is revealed that Gary failed the polygraph yet again, as we knew he would. However, police are shocked to learn that their prime suspect actually has a random heart murmur. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. 
So the expert that performed the test this third time explains to the investigators that Gary will always fail a polygraph or it will always come back inconclusive. So due to this heart condition, Gary would never pass a polygraph. So they're back to square one. They wasted so much time with Gary and polygraphs are unreliable anyways. There was no evidence linking him to his wife's murder or any of the other people. Like, yes, the spouse is always the first one to look at, but I don't think the spouse normally kills, like, I don't think someone normally kills their wife and then goes on to kill, like, a bunch of other people. That is crazy. (laughs) I hope they were looking at other people besides just Gary. Otherwise, they lost a whole bunch of time. I know, and I, I, I honestly don't think they were. I don't think they had any other leads at this point. They were just... I mean, they had that sketch, but again, it didn't produce any leads. So thank goodness for this expert, because without him, Glinda's husband would have just continued to fell polygraphs because he probably would have taken 10 more and then he would have remained the prime suspect. Oh, so did they let Gary off? Yes. So after this, the suspicion on Gary goes away. Oh, okay. Well, who was it? (laughs) Let's find <laughs> out. Do some more investigating. Yes. There's a bunch of military bases around. I know. So back to Wendy and Marlene. They both went missing in early 1981. They were both last seen trying to catch rides. Three days after Wendy Wilson was walking to her boyfriend's house and goes missing in Moose Creek after she got into that truck with an unknown man. Her body is found near Johnson Road, which is 32 miles south of Fairbanks near the Trans-Alaska Highway. We all know Alaska is the last frontier, so if you go off the road, there are endless secluded areas with thick forest. Wendy was found strangled, shot in the face with a shotgun, laying on her back, fully clothed, with no signs of sexual assault. And this is eerily similar to how Glinda Sodomon's body was found. Yes. Nine weeks later, in May of 1981, 20-year-old Marlene Peters, the one who was hitching a ride to Anchorage to see her sick dad, is found dead. Her body is found only two miles away from where Wendy Wilson was found off of that Johnson Road. She Shot was in str- the face? Yep. Strangled? strangled. Yep. Strangled. And not assaulted? Yep, exact same way. All the things strangled, shot in the face with a shotgun, laying on her back, fully clothed. So this is obviously a victim who seems to have fallen to a serial killer that has a pattern. Yep. So the community of North Pole and Fairbanks is growing more anxious and panicked and the police are feeling that pressure to find this guy. People start locking their doors even in the middle of the day and they're taking big precautions like not letting their kids go play outside alone or walk down the road to a friend's house. That desperate search for Doris O-Ring continued because remember she was still missing And she didn't seem to fit the M.O. of the killer quite like the other women did. She was much younger than all of the other victims and their bodies had all been found. But Doris remained missing. So 
police are thinking, could she still be alive? Could her predator and the other woman's killer be two different people? At this point, the only evidence that investigators have are through eyewitness testimonies. Those two from Doris O'Ring's case who saw a military man in a blue car and then Wendy's friend who witnessed her getting into that white truck. So with the lack of information, troopers have a hard time and don't even have a clue of where to start. They decide to obtain a record of all the men in the area, sifting through and eliminating all the men that were too old or too young to commit the crimes. And this left them with a list of 15,000 men. Oh, wow. So I wonder if they ever thought of looking at the military men since um, that guy was, you know, the witness saw a military man. Right. Sergeant Jim McCann stated on ID's Ice Cold Killers episode that, quote, you can't just hit enter or highlight or click on things. It's memory from each of the investigators, end quote. So at this time, there was not a database. Each officer had to remember the information and connect things with memory. The investigation team actually decides to send Sergeant Sam Bernard to Georgia, and he was sent there to study a new police procedure that was occurring during the Atlanta child murders investigation in Georgia. So they're studying this new police procedure, and what Bernard comes back with is a new way of entering leads via a computer. So this was kind of the start of a database that would be used just between local, state, and military police forces at the time to interlead so that connections could be made statewide. And obviously now today we have like connections nationwide. Yeah, that's good that they got that going. I know, it's crazy. The system was implemented statewide in Alaska and they hired a lot of people to input the data and get it started. The new technology didn't exactly helped solve this case but I thought it was an important thing to mention because it's obviously a huge step forward in fighting their crime statewide and now like I said nationwide and so on so technology just gets better with time and investigators are able to easier connect criminals to crimes in these days because of the start of this technology I was wondering if um, these are um close to each other like if it was different polices working on each case or county or sheriff or it probably was because I I think from what I remember there was you know North Pole police Fairbanks police and then I think each army base also had their own police so it would be a lot of having to work together probably but then there's also the state troopers and I think they're more broad and kind of over the general area. Yeah. Anyway, soon the FBI actually became involved in profiling the killer. And this was also a new tactic at the time that was coming to light. And just like the database, the FBI had used this new tactic in profiling the killer in the Atlanta child murders case. And at the time, profiling had been roughly 85% accurate. Criminal profiling is used to target specifics of serial offenders, such as personality traits, behavior patterns, age, race, and much more. This method is a mix between law enforcement and psychology, but 
Of course, keep in mind at the time of our case, it was a really new concept and it was just starting to be explored. So the FBI profiler informed the police force that the North Pole serial killer would most likely be a single man who lives alone and probably has a hard time holding a job. He is also most likely a civilian, so a term used when living around a military base because if you are not enlisted in the military, you're considered a civilian. So the profiler is saying it's not someone in the Army or the Air Force. Okay, but that that witness still saw a military guy. Yeah, both witnesses still, with Doris's case, saw someone who looked to be in the military. So at this point, three women, Glinda Sodoman, Wendy Wilson, and Marlene Peters, have been found dead. And like we said, fully clothed, strangled. They all had a gunshot to their head. Doris, that youngest victim, was last seen when she was just 11 years old and she remains missing. But the terror is not over because two days after Marlene Peters' body is found, 19-year-old Lori King is reported missing. Investigators and the community are really frantic to find her because no one wants Lori King to end up with the same fate as the other girls. The community and the law enforcement desperately search for Lori and they have no success. The media deems this string of murders and missing young woman as the Fairbanks serial murders. Lori is missing. She was last seen walking home alone near Fairbanks. And this really put the community on high alert as it seems that the killings were happening more frequently than they had started. Yeah, I wonder if like the community, they had to have like seen the news and stuff. It's just surprising that these young girls are walking by themselves or hitchhiking or riding their bike alone. It's that'd be really scary. (laughs) So I wonder how like publicized it was. I know because obviously it says the media deemed it the Fairbanks serial murders or whatever but maybe they didn't start really connecting them in the media until like later on I don't know but they they are happening more and more frequently I feel like between the first case and Doris's case it was like 10 months and then it started becoming like every month scary on September 2nd 1981 Four airmen went on a hunting trip and they came across the remains of a human body. Investigators were called in and it was determined to be Lori King's body. She was found in a wooded area off of that Johnson Road, the same road that Marlene and Wendy are found off of. Lori was near a missile site and appeared to be fully clothed, strangled, and shot in the face with a shotgun. So the serial killer left his mark on yet another young girl. Investigators were working hard, day in and day out, and they had to stop this man that was terrorizing the small town. Police would patrol through the neighborhoods, down dirt roads, and outside of the military bases looking for a blue car or a white truck that was described in each case. They assumed that their perpetrator may have been using two different vehicles to hide from the suspicion And although the FBI profiler stated that the killer would most likely be a civilian, 
Investigators couldn't help but wonder why both those eyewitnesses we talked about in Doris O'Ring's case described a man with a military shirt on, a man with a military haircut. Also, all the bodies were found within 10 miles of Eielson Air Force Base. Well, they better start looking there. Yeah. So months started to pass and no more girls were going missing. People are starting to breathe a little easier and feel this sense of relief as time passed without losing any more women in their community. This only raised investigators' suspicions, though, that maybe their killer was enlisted in the military, had he gotten deployed or moved to another base. This ends up leading investigators in Alaska to send out a request to all law enforcement surrounding any Air Force base across the world, asking them to reach out if they had a young girl in the community go missing or found murdered in any similar circumstances to their Alaska victims. That was smart. Yeah. And in the meantime, troopers obtain a list from Eielson Air Force Base for all military personnel that had been transferred or moved after the fifth victim was reported missing. They also obtained a list of 550 vehicles that were similar to those seen in Doris and Wendy's disappearance. And as they narrowed the list down to match what they were looking for, a call came. Cassandra Goodwin, who was 22 years old and from Henrietta, Texas, goes missing and is found murdered near Wichita, Texas, which just so happens to be next to Shepard Air Force Base. And the Texas authorities call the investigators in Alaska just as they had requested. And they felt like this was it. They had their guy. They could just fill it. So Sergeant Sam Bernard hops on a flight and goes straight to Texas as soon as he can. And when he arrives, the sheriff actually informs him that, never mind, they don't believe the case is related to the murders in Alaska because they think they know what happened to Cassandra and they decided her case is now closed. The police in Texas linked Cassandra loosely to a meth dealer who shortly after her murder actually blew himself up in his trailer home with a meth lab. So they believed that this is who killed Cassandra and as they said, the case was closed. Wait, did Cassandra, did they report that she had a gunshot to her face or I think she strangled? I couldn't find exactly why, but I'm assuming that she was found in a really similar way to the victims in Alaska. And that's why they had called. And regardless of the sheriff insisting that Cassandra's case was closed, Bernard was adamant that Cassandra was another victim to the serial killer that Alaska state troopers had been on the hunt for. Bernard's suspicions only grew as their list narrowed to the military men that had been transferred from Eielson Air Force Base to Shepard Air Force Base after the date of Lauren King's disappearance. And there were names on that list that stood out to investigators. So, Thomas Richard Bundy. Do you think it's Bundy or Bundy? It's B-U-N-D-A-Y. Bundy, probably. Bundy. Okay. Thomas Richard Bundy was a technical sergeant working as an electrician in the Air Force. He was born in 1948 in Nashville, Tennessee. He was the youngest of two. His older brother was a full 15 years older than him. Thomas always looked up to his father, who was a World War II veteran, instilling in him that urge to join the military. 
But his father suffered mentally from PTSD that came from his time serving in the military. And once he was home, he became very abusive towards his kids and Bundy's mother. By the time his father died in 1963, Bundy refused to attend the funeral and ran away from home for like a little less than a week. Through school, Bundy was unpopular, but was a good student and he seemingly led a good lifestyle. He graduated in 1966, married his high school sweetheart, and then one year later in 1967, he joined the U.S. Air Force. He served all over the country and the world, and during one of his deployments to Asia, he had to leave his wife behind in the States. She grew more and more lonely, and she actually ended up having an affair and became pregnant. She gave birth to this other man's son, but kept the child and wanted to stay with her husband. Thomas Bundy was devastated and felt betrayed, but he still decided to stay committed to his family and agreed to raise that baby as his own. Eventually, he and his wife gave birth to their own daughter. In the mid-1970s, Thomas Bundy was stationed at Isleson Air Force Base and was showing signs of being burnt out in his job. His emotional state seemed to just be deteriorating, so he decided to visit a psychotherapist. And what would you know, during his time stationed at Isleson Air Force Base, Bundy owned not only a blue car, but also a white truck. Well, yep. Some pretty good indicators. (laughs) So, Sergeant Sam Bernard goes back to Texas a couple times to talk with Bundy, who refuses to take a polygraph or give DNA, but agrees to answer some questions. Bernard is unable to get much information out of him, but he is baffled and appalled that Bundy refuses to give a polygraph or DNA. He hadn't questioned one person so far that refused these things. But without enough evidence to take Bundy into custody, Bernard returns to Alaska alone. And while he's back in Alaska, Bernard creates a photo lineup to show Tom, Doris O'Ring's older brother, who was an eyewitness in her case. Bernard included Bundy's photo, and without hesitation, Tom picked it. He exclaimed that it was absolutely the man he remembers his sister talking to the day before she went missing. Investigators come across some information that is pretty disturbing. Bundy was known among his colleagues in the Air Force for being inappropriate. He specifically made inappropriate sexual remarks to women and had many complaints filed against him in the Air Force's system. With this information, along with the photo lineup and the evidence of Bundy having both a blue car and a white truck, as well as being transferred to Shepard Air Force Base shortly after that fifth and final victim out of Alaska went missing, investigators decide that they have enough information to return to Texas and search Bundy's home. So they do this. On March 7th, 1983, Troopers Chris Stockard and Jim McCann make the flight from Alaska to Texas. They set up an interrogation room at a small motel, and Bundy is willing to talk to them. For several days in a row, they question Bundy. 
each day letting him go after three short hours. Bundy believes he's fooling these troopers and building a strong relationship with them. The technology that they had could only record three hours of questioning at a time. So each day when that limit was up, they just had to let Bundy walk free. Stockard and McCann talked with Bundy about anything except for the murders. Not one time did Bundy ask why he was being questioned or what he was suspected of. After a week of questioning, Bundy returns to the motel unexpected. This time, he reaches down into his pocket and pulls out a note. He hands it to them and casually walks away. McCann talks about this in the episode that ID put on their Ice Cold Killer series titled North Pole Sleigh Ride. The note read, quote, Dear Jim and Chris, I have really enjoyed talking to you guys the last couple of days. You say I did these things and I didn't. Rich. End quote. Jim McCann states in his interview with ID that this was one of the weakest denials to a crime he had ever seen. The troopers were able to obtain a search warrant for Bundy's home and they end up spending 12 hours going through the house. Bundy refused to leave their side, watching carefully everything they touched. Ammunition that matched the ammunition at the crime scene was found inside the home, along with news clippings of the crimes. One clipping saved was titled, FBI Profiles Killer. This sent chills down McCann's spine, so he asked Bundy what it was and why did he have it saved. Bundy explained that he brought these clippings to Texas with him as a souvenir to remind him of his time in Alaska. I know, that just like makes me sick. Like, What kind of person would want to remember their time living somewhere with a bunch of clippings of multiple murders? Yeah, and there's different souvenirs that you could take back. It was like his trophy. It's just like way to expose yourself. Like, (laughs) that was just a stupid thing to say. Anyway, investigators continue to talk with Bundy, and Jim McCann is questioning Bundy about the murders he is suspected of. He also then adds in a sixth kill he knows Bundy did not commit. McCann uses this close relationship Bundy feels he has with the investigators to make him feel comfortable, saying to him, quote, Rich, this isn't going to go away. It wasn't all of them, was it? End quote. So basically, he added in a kill that Bundy didn't do so that he could use it to make him feel comfortable and ask him, like, you didn't kill all those people though, right? And then finally, Bundy confesses. He says, quote, yeah, it wasn't all of them, end quote. Ultimately, Thomas Richard Bundy confesses to murdering Glinda Sodomon, Wendy Wilson, Marlene Peters, Lori King, and Doris O'Ring. The only time he cried during his confession was when he was talking about 11-year-old Doris. He agreed to lead them to Doris. Bundy was unable to get into detail about why he committed these horrific crimes. The only thing he stated was that he was having problems with girls in Alaska. But it's like, dude, you're married. So... (laughs) <laughs> I was going to say, did he end up getting divorced? I thought his wife stayed with him. Yeah, he's still married to her at this point. 
when he's even making this confession. So it's like, what? Although Bundy made a full confession, the Alaska troopers did not obtain an arrest warrant prior to this conversation, and they didn't have the authority to arrest Bundy right after this confession. So they were forced to let Bundy walk free, but they made an agreement with him that he would return the next morning once the troopers had their warrant. The governor of Alaska needed to bring this man back. The community had this urge for justice to be served for the many young lives he took. So the governor offered a private jet and an arrest warrant was obtained. The next morning, investigators are anxious as they await Bundy's arrival. It was an eerie day. There was a storm rolling in. The sky was gloomy. Troopers are growing concerned as they wait for Bundy, and they make contact with the officers stationed at Bundy's home. They are informed that Bundy had somehow snuck past the surveillance stationed at his home, and the troopers start to get nervous that he may be out killing one last time. They await his arrival, brainstorming, like, what can we do to find him? We have to bring him back to Alaska. And at 1.45 in the afternoon, they receive a call. Thomas Richard Bunday is dead. What? I know. How? So he sneaks past the surveillance at his home, which like, how? He gets his motorcycle out somehow and he rides it. He drops his taxes off and then decides to drive 40 miles out of town. Once he's 40 miles out of town, he actually turns around and starts heading back into town. He began to pull the throttle as hard as he could, and he ended up reaching over 100 miles an hour. And at the same time, a semi-truck was coming towards him. And as it approached, he turned and steered directly into the semi, crashing head on and dying on impact. Oh my gosh. I know. It's like no justice served there. I, they should have had the warrant before he made that confession like or s- something. I, know, I was thinking, how, how did he sneak out? He had to have been being monitored. I know. <laughs> and like with his motorcycle. Killed, you know, multiple people. Yeah. Just gets past the surveillance. So months after his death, Hairs are found in his truck, and they were genetically linked to Wendy Wilson. He had never confessed to Cassandra Goodwin's case out of Texas, but he confessed to all those victims in Alaska. Glinda Sodoman, a newlywed mother taken from her home while her baby laid in the crib and her husband was at work. Wendy Wilson, a young teenager at the prime time in her life, taken while walking to her boyfriend's home in Moose Creek. Marlene Peters, a loving daughter, taken while trying to hitch a ride to Anchorage to visit her sick dad. And Lori King, a beautiful young woman, taken while walking home alone in Fairbanks. And then Doris O'Ring, an 11-year-old child, taken while riding her bike near her home in North Pole. Three years after Bundy's death, they finally find a skull on Isleson Air Force Base back in the woods. Before he died, Bundy had told investigators that he strangled Doris at one of his favorite killing spots, and then he drove onto the base with Doris's body in his trunk. 
He dumped her in an area that was fairly close to where he worked. His job in the Air Force actually allowed him to set up cameras where he could actually view the spot where he left the body and remind himself of the killing. Troopers believe he is responsible for that murder of Cassandra Goodwin in Texas, but he denied it to avoid the death penalty that he could have received in Texas before ultimately deciding his own fate and taking his own life. His death was not justice for the families of his victims, but a small victory knowing that a monster was no longer able to take away any more lives. One thing I wonder about, though, is like, there's no way this just all started in Alaska, right? Like, Yeah, you think he had to have done more. Yeah, he was stationed all over the world. And I wonder if it was ever investigated to see if there were some mysterious deaths surrounding those Air Force bases. I find it super hard to believe that these five women in Alaska were his first kills. Right. I, I agree with that. And that's the story of the serial killer Thomas Richard Bunday. for a palate cleanser to make you feel a little better after whatever my mom just told you about. First of all, I was born in Alaska. It's such a great place and so beautiful. We love to visit our friends there. So did you know that in Alaska that it is illegal to whisper in someone's ear while they are moose hunting? They take their moose hunting very seriously. Don't distract them. That's silly. I hope you have a fabulous and safe week. See you next time. And when I was in Alaska, I saw Santa's deer in Santa's shop, and I saw Santa and his elves. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Hope you have a good day. Bye. If you enjoyed our show today and felt like you got a lot of information, please share this story with your friends and onto your social media. We would love it if you helped us continue to make this podcast. And the best way you can do that is by leaving us a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts. I will seriously love you. If you have any case suggestions, please email them to us at truecrimeexposed at gmail.com. T-R-U-E-C-R-I-M-E-E-X-P-O-S-E-D at gmail.com. I also want to do a segment where we share stories or questions or any craziness from our listeners' lives. So if you have something to say that you want featured on the podcast, please email us at that same email above. Follow us on social media for pictures and info on each case that we cover. Our Instagram and TikTok are at true crime underscore podcast and you can find us on twitter at true crime underscore pod 
This podcast is written, hosted, edited, all the things by me, Kayla Waters. It is co-hosted by my awesome mom, Alicia Jenkins. My cute daughter, Charlie Waters, gives us a cute little palate cleanser in case you just need a breathe for a second after a not-so-happy story. Our original graphic art was done by Arthur Max and our music was created by Jaden Schultz. You can find him on Instagram at in pajamas music. So there is an organization. It's called Interior Alaska Center for Nonviolent Living. Their mission is to create a safe and supportive community for all. IAC provides programs to intervene and prevent domestic violence, sexual assault, suicide, and other violent crimes that negatively impact our community and the surrounding interior villages. You'll find this statement and other information on their website, which is iacnvl.org. You can get involved or donate, so go help make a positive change. It also looks like Fairbanks has a Native Association Survivors Program. Through their Office for Victims of Crime, they increase victim-centered and culturally competent direct services to survivors of violence and provide emergency-slash-transitional lodging for victims of violence. They are funded through government grants, so I'm unsure if you can donate to this cause, but you can go to OVC ojp.gov and sign up to be a peer reviewer to assess grants awarded. They are looking for people with diverse backgrounds that have a relevant experience in the field of victim assistance. True Crime Exposed encourages you to stand up and do your part in helping fight crimes and violence in our communities. We love you guys.